Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we have two people who have inspired so very many peace workers and war tax resistors for decades, both for the strength of their convictions and for their ability to nurture and draw on the strength of community that makes great witness and work possible. I first learned of Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner in my early days as a war tax resistor, and they were notable because their steadfast witness for peace led to an attempt by the government to take their home, something that happens to very, very few war tax resistors. The peace community, both locally in Coleraine, Massachusetts, and nationally, gathered in an occupation of years to protect Randy and Betsy's home. Retired now for many years, they are still standing strong against efforts to take their money for war. Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner join us today from Massachusetts. Randy, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. You're quite welcome. Glad to be here. And Betsy, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks for setting it up, too. No, no problem. I want to talk about everything about war tax resistance, about peacemaking, and I want to talk about marital issues involved in peacemaking. So I'm bounce back and forth between you. You let me know what's convenient for you, and we'll do as best we can to hit all the important things. What's best for me is to not be continuously facing the camera, even if I'm not talking for the whole time. I got some brain injury going on that makes zooms hard on me. That's perfectly fine to do whatever. You just let me know and at any point we'll adjust. Okay. Let's get started. Okay. Uh, And I'm going to start with you, Randy. Okay. Because I have the sense that you have the most visible witness about war tax resistance, about peacemaking, about resisting the move of our nation towards war. It started pretty early and you're about 10 years older than I am. I turned 18 in 72, and I think in 62, you must have done similar. Vietnam was just the seed of it. Our, the U.S. involvement was happening around then. When did you actually head to Harvard? My freshman year at Harvard was started in the fall of 62. Okay, so there's Cuban Missile Crisis, and there's all kinds of things like that going on at that time, as I recall. Right. Not that I remember, just because I was eight years old, but I do know the history of it. Were you a peacenik already at that point? No, no. I went to um, two very elite schools, first Exeter Academy for the last two years of high school in New Hampshire, and then I went to Harvard for four years, with a year out in between when David and I went to uh, East Africa. And the David you're referring to is David Zaremka, who I've had on Spirit in Action in the past, although he died a couple of years right. ago now. He's been a wonderful friend for all those years. But when he and I got to East Africa in Tanzania, specifically the western edge of Tanzania, where there was a refugee camp for Rwandans who had already faced an earlier genocide, earlier than the one, that, the huge one that got the big publicity in whatever year that was. 1994. I was not even aware of the Vietnam War when I left Harvard in June of 64 to go there. It was happening, but at a very low level. What was on my mind was Africa and Rwanda, what I had to do to prepare and learning Swahili and so forth. So it wasn't even on my radar. And a friend of mine who had been over to Africa the year before 
when he came back that summer before I left, he sort of said, are you part of these Vietnam protests? And I said, no, not really. He said, wait till you get back. You, <laughs> you will be. <laughs> and I was, because what living in a refugee camp for 15 months did for me was to, and, and African villages surrounding, give me some notion of what most of the people in the world live like unlike the world I came from. And this is the kind of country we were bombing and destroying crops and contaminating land and, and ripping up everything. I thought, my God, this is Tanzania, but it's very similar and I can't go along with it. So right away, I, um, David and I started a little anti-war group when we got back, which wasn't very effective. It was a letter writing campaign about Vietnam. But before I graduated two years later, I signed a statement of complicity which was going around that Ben Spock, you may remember, and, and uh, William Sloan Coffin. They had been indicted for putting out a call for young men to refuse orders to show up for the draft. And I signed it. And from then on, I just got deeper and deeper until I, in the late summer of 67, when I was out in California, about to start graduate school at Stanford in education, I just threw over the whole thing. I decided, the heck with this graduate school. I'm going to work for, against the war. And I turned in my draft card and I went to work for the War Resisters League in San Francisco. Was that before or after you actually went to prison? That's before. Okay. Just a few things in your life, Randy, that I want to sort out. Again, I turned 18 in 72. You did it in 62. And so a lot of people think, you know, America was great in the 1950s, right? Uh, everybody had their hot rod and so on. Were you into that culture at all? The, I don't know, the cool guy, the Fonz, happy days, you know, was that any part of your culture or was there something that you already on the road to being a peacenik? No, I really wasn't on the road at all in any way that I can remember. Africa put me on the road. But what put you on the road to Africa? That's a good question. I wonder if I've ever thought about that. Being totally alienated at Harvard put me on the road to getting out of there. And hearing that there was a one-year, 15-month thing I could do in Africa and still come back, I said, I'm going to do that. And so I applied for the program, was accepted, and spent the rest of that sophomore year at Harvard focusing totally on Africa, learning Swahili, reading the geography, the history, everything I could do to get ready. And so that was my total focus. And I Whatever campus demonstrations were going on at the time, and there were some even earlier on against the war, I either didn't know about or wasn't part of. So I, I was a straight arrow at that point. <laughs> and Betsy, I want to bring you into the conversation as well. I think you got married in the 1970s, the two of you. So you're behind him by a couple few years. Did you go to Africa? Did you get changed or pointed in the direction of peacemaking, this concern or was this just something that came along with when you got Randy as your husband? <laughs> I think when I was at college, I got interested in what was going on, the anti-war movement. It wasn't as strong where I was. I was at Mount Holyoke College, and because it was all women, we weren't faced with the draft, or at least not right next to us in classroom. But there were definitely protests, and I was involved in some of that, but not. I wasn't a leader by any means. So I wasn't intimately involved in that at that point. Was there anything in your background, Betsy, that predisposed you towards concern for peace, for justice, those kinds of issues? Well, my parents were always community-minded people. So that was a part of my you know, growing up. 
they were Eisenhower Republicans. And I think, you know, during college, I became a Democrat. So that was one leap away from not a big one. But um, and I went to Washington one summer and was in a HUD internship, housing and urban development, and did some work with the director of community can't remember the phrase, but it was the aspect of community development that needed to be involved in housing programs. And and I got to see how things weren't going as they should be, so to speak. So my awareness started growing then. Also being in Washington, that was the summer I flew in over RFK's funeral cortege. So I was aware, you know, pretty aware of what was going on in Washington at the time and learning about that and, and meeting some of the leadership in, in Washington through the program. I became very disillusioned with, we met Ford and I thought, how can this man be who he is? <laughs> He's not very bright. I think it was the minority whip called somebody, one of my housemates worked as a waitress in a, in a local joint and, and he was there and he called her boyfriend a dirty Jap. And, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing that just that I said, wait a minute, you know, these are supposed to be people of integrity and they're not. So it was eye opening that way. And then I worked as a city planner for a year afterwards when they were doing model cities in Springfield and that was a big disappointment because they were tearing down all the uh, Hispanic housing and black housing for insurance companies, basically, to build their high rises in Springfield. So I wanted to be on the outside protesting that. For both of you, I'd be interested in knowing what your educational background was, where you were studying, what you were preparing to do in life. I don't necessarily think you had a major in war tax resistance for either one of you, but something fed into that. We were both political science majors. Yeah, at Harvard, they called it government. But uh -huh. yeah, yeah, but all my government courses were disappointing, to be honest. They just seemed like affirmations of the status quo and professors who went in and out from the university to government in and back to the university and, and who really, I, I didn't know then, but they got very much, very much involved in helping to plan the war effort on the ground in terms of things like, what do they call those... Um, and they tried to scoop up villages together in one big village to protect them. Right. <laughs> uh, but those were, you know, liberal academic plans from the Ivy League to some extent. So I majored in government, but my life in my first two years at Harvard, before I went off to Africa, was focused on working every moment I could in the weekends and after school in one of the poorest sections of Boston in a settlement house. Settlement house, the same as that we had in Chicago, the famous Jane Adams. Jane Adams, that's right. Exactly the same. And uh, that's where life was happening to me and where I felt engaged and useful, which I wanted to be. Did you, either of you, have religious background? I was brought up Methodist, but my parents weren't terribly religious. I was congregational. The church was across the street, so I always had to go. My mother was the head of the Sunday school, but when I finally got confirmed, Somebody said, so what is congregationalism about? I said, I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> <laughs> One of the people that I know that you affected along the way was Daniel Ellsberg. It's amazing to think of the steps that we take in our life that have repercussions down the way. So you go off to Tanzania, and that changes you, and you change Daniel Ellsberg, who changed the history of our country because of his exposés. 
Anyway, religiously, you had a Sunday school mother, and you didn't know what Sunday school was about. (laughs) I knew what it was about, which was social activity and meeting girls. So why did you end up with a Methodist? (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to get a Congregationalist. (laughs) (laughs) Those Protestants are strong. (laughs) Yeah. I want to move us towards vortex resistance. Now, again, I turned 18 in 1972. And one of the things that really surprises me, because I was in debate in high school, and so I debated the Vietnam War. I knew the pros and the cons, and my friend Kevin's mother, she had filled me with all of that leftist, liberal stuff that most of the mainline society didn't want me to think about. But she educated me to a significant degree. And yet, having learned a lot, I registered for the draft in 1972. Now, they stopped drafting, right, the year following, so I never actually faced the draft. You, on the other hand, Randy, you ended up facing the draft and making the decision not to file as a conscience objector. Could you talk a little bit about the history that got you to that point? By the time I... Well, I registered for the draft. As soon as I got out to California to do graduate work, I turned in my draft card. So I didn't register. I turned in my draft card. I registered when I turned 18. I was working on a cattle ranch for the summer in Wyoming. And uh, turns out I was the first draft resistor in the state of Wyoming, turned out. <laughs> At the time, I registered loyally. And when I was indicted, my trial was held. Indictment came from Wyoming, and I had to go back there to face trial. And, uh, oh, boy, it was a rough place. That's where they were grabbing hippies, so-called, off of their motorcycles or their trucks and um, shaving their hair off. You know, that was just a Wyoming sport, I guess. So that's where I first got a draft card, turned it in when I got to Stanford and forgetting what years now. I got to Stanford in 67, turned in my draft card, wrote a letter to the Slake of Service and said, you know, I'm not your boy. I'm not going to do it. I don't believe in it. So that's the end. Then I joined the War Resisters League based in San Francisco, and I was a staff member in their San Francisco office, and I was helping to organize big demonstrations in Oakland at the Oakland Induction Center. I was getting arrested along with other people blocking induction buses. I think it's the first arrest in October 16th of 67. I met a man named Roy Kepler, who was a longtime pacifist anti-war person from Colorado originally, and Roy came up to me in the prison and he said, he said, how would you like to come to work for the War Resisters League? I told him I was dropping out of Stanford. I said, what's that? Never heard of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he told me, and before long, he said he could raise a little money and support me as a worker there. And he did. And he raised it right there in prison because there was a dentist, there was a doctor, there was a lawyer. Sounds like a song, dentist, doctor, lawyer. And <laughs> they each contributed like $50 a month so I could have a salary to work for the War Resisters League. So then I got involved, and then the war tax resistance started when, you know, remember that there was a telephone tax at one time, which Congress had said was at least in part to help pay for the war, which was you know getting more and more expensive. So they thought that's an easy tax to tack on 10% of your phone bill. So I was in charge of paying the bill at the War Resistance League, and this older guy, who I think was a World War II CO who had been imprisoned, said to me, why are you paying the telephone tax? I said, why not? He said, you won't let them take your body to fight the war. Why are you giving them your money to fight the war? And it's like a light bulb over my head. I said, what's the difference? So I, from then on, not only stopped paying the telephone tax, but as soon as I got back home and uh, met Betsy, and I don't know if we had gotten married yet or just about the time, 
It's the first time we had a taxable income, federally taxable. We decided we weren't going to pay any um, federal income tax. So that was like, I don't know when it was, 70, 72, 71? No, no, no. We didn't get married until 76. But Randy's... We lived together before that. Yeah, but we didn't... That's right, didn't have a Until we were really living together, we didn't start resisting the telephone tax. That was my introduction from Randy on this whole business. And, And it was fairly easy in a way, although I was a little nervous about it. You know, are we going to lose our phone ability to use the phone? But it was Randy's way of pulling me into it. It worked (laughs) on that level. But we didn't have an income that was taxable for a while. And so... Because it was so low. Because it was so low, right. So we didn't have to think about that. So, you know, by the time we were married in 76 and later when we had some income, then came the issue of the taxation. And that was harder. That was definitely harder for me to deal with, but it started slowly. You know, I'm going to pursue that in just a moment. There's one thing I wanted to check with you, Randy. You decided not to participate with the government in the whole military system, drafting all of that. You did not choose to file as a conscientious objector, as a CO. Could you mention why you made that choice? Because for a lot of people, that was their way out, right? Sure. Well, that's exactly how I thought of it. it. Was It was a way out for people who would otherwise maybe be protesting. Because one of the conditions of the CO status, as I understood it, was that you not only had to do a certain kind of public spirited service work, but you had to avoid being actively opposing the war. And I said, there's no way I could do it. So I began to see that the CO was a way, in my mind, of siphoning off conscientious young men who might otherwise oppose the war by giving them a way out. And I didn't want to take it. Again, I turned 18 in 1972. They stopped drafting the following year, so I never actually faced the draft. So in some ways, I didn't have to confront this. It wasn't until I got back from the Peace Corps end of 1979, and a year and a half later, I started owing tax that I had to face. Wait a minute. Instead of taking my body, they're taking my taxes. You mentioned, Betsy, that you didn't have to face the draft. That is one case where sexism cuts against men, and it predisposes us. It trains us in the military way of thinking and force. And for a lot of people, I think it commits them to a life of violence and what's important about America. When you questioned about paying taxes for war, when Randy brought that to your attention, you felt less of a call to that than he did. Maybe that had something to do with the fact that it wasn't question of your body being conscripted for war either. What do you think about that? I think that's certainly true. We didn't, I didn't have to think about it the way a man had to think about it. And it wasn't on my mind you know, during the Vietnam War, I certainly had men friends who were dealing with it. And some of the ones who were closer to me got 4F. And so when I later met Randy, who had gone to jail, it was like, oh, there's a totally different way to go here, or way not to go, rather, which was was very different from the people I'd been involved with. But I think, you know, I, I just hadn't had quite as much eye-opening experiences, Randy, prior to that. So it took me a, a longer while. And we also lived near my parents, or my parents moved to where we were. And they were pretty nervous about it as well. So, you know, there was that element, which has an influence on somebody 
But when the uh, push came to shove, and it was really about Nicaragua, it wasn't about Vietnam at the time, it was about Nicaragua. And, you know, we had heard, and Randy had been there at a certain point, you know, where our money was going in that country and blowing people up and I don't know if you want this story right now, but when, sure, of course. when we had been resisting and we had a lien on our house, which we had bought, but it was on community land trust land, which we didn't own, we leased. Randy was away at a conference in the Midwest and Wisconsin or somewhere for the freeze campaign. And I got a call from the IRS saying, you know, we're going to put a lien on your house. So I called my neighbor who was a tax resistor, Bob Beatty, and also David Detmold, who was another tax refuser. And the next day we had, I don't know, 30, 40 people in our house who were there to support us. Could I correct this story a little bit? Yeah, you can. I think I missed the thing. (laughs) It's hard to keep track of all this. We're talking about something that's 40 years ago. Yeah, I think what I remember is I was away at a conference. I was working on a big nationwide money out of politics campaign. I got a call from you saying, we've just received notice that they're about to seize the house. I think you better get home. So (laughs) (laughs) I immediately left this conference I was at and flew home. When I arrived, the house was full of our friends who were saying, we're not going to let this happen. You're not going to lose your house. We'll stand by you. It was great. Great response. But that was several years before they actually legally and physically seized the house. And I I do want to talk about that entire history. I want to do a little bit more setting up. But folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner are here today. We're talking about war tax resistance. We're talking about a life dedicated to peace and being peace and helping our country move in that direction. org is our website. And on that, you can find links to all kinds of good folks. I'll link you to some of the writings and the ways that Randy is in particular has shared his witness about peace. And we've got links to all of our guests of the last 17 years on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Please leave a comment when you visit. You can support us, look at that menu, and you can donate. But even more important, I'd say, is to support your local community radio station. I don't know what you have right there where you live, folks, but I think that Spirit in Action is actually carried in your town. I know that there's a few different stations in Massachusetts where we're carried out of the 45 nationwide that carry our programs. Local media is so important, alternative media, and with particularly small community radio stations, they have options to carry it that mainstream media certainly is not going to touch. And even public radio is going to be hesitant about touching. It can be very difficult to bring a large radio station to this kind of media. So please, folks, support your local media. And that's radios. It's also community newspapers, etc. I'm sure you both have been involved in those things over the years as well. Again, Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner are here We're talking about war tax resistance. I want to get to the seizure of your house in part because I became a very active war tax resistor. I started with the phone tax in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was changing our total spending, building up the military in the 1980s, and so therefore contributing to Honduras and Guatemala, other repressive regimes in Central America, and using our money to support that. 
So first I started with the phone tax. And as a matter of fact, when I became treasurer for the Quaker meeting in Milwaukee, the first time I went to write out the tax, it's, wait a minute, we have a phone bill. I don't pay phone tax. I can't do this. And it led to a whole level of discernment by the Quakers there about our role. What are we doing about, are we contributing to war and to violence? Just kind of, well, it's in the check. We don't even notice it. In 1982 is the first time I had taxable income. The War Tax Resistance Group in Milwaukee, we all banded together. I was the figurehead. We're resisting my taxes. We're going to pay it in food so they can't use it to buy military wares. The next day, I got a call from my dad because it was all over the news stations, and my dad heard about it uh, 30 miles away. He said, uh, I heard about some asshole named Mark Judkins who doesn't want to pay for the military. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh, the discussion, or at least a little bit of it. My father had served in the Korean War. What reaction did your families give you to your initial steps towards peacemaking by being non-complicit in paying for war? Well, my parents, particularly my mother, said, you know, there are legal ways to challenge this, and that's where you should be putting your efforts, not in this resistance. I think it, you know, it frightened them. And so they were much more oriented towards do this the legal way. I would add that Betsy's father, Martin, died of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, shortly after our house was seized. And um, he told us very clearly he was pr proud of us for having taken this stand certainly warmed my heart because, as Betsy said, that's not where he started off by any means. Right. And during the vigil that was around our house after it had been seized and they were I'm jumping ahead here, maybe I shouldn't jump ahead, but he was very frightened that there was going to be violence and somebody was going to come by with an AR-15 type of gun. Um, there were threats of violence. During and that. certainly we had some angry people around us. Yeah, you don't believe in fighting, so therefore I'm going to come kill you with a gun. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm sure people do not see the hypocrisy in such thoughts, but let's move towards that. You started war tax resistance quite a few years beforehand, and I think it probably took 10 years before the government started coming after you. I started in 1982, and it was a couple years after that they went to my boss, the place where I was doing computer programming, and tried to levy my account to pay for the taxes that I didn't contribute to the military. That's one of actually the more proudest moments of my life. I talked to my boss ahead of time to warn him that this might be coming. And he knew me as a very active Quaker, that I put my life on the line. I, I worked my beliefs. I lived them out. So I talked to him about it, and he said, well, how much is it, and what, what do they do if you don't pay it? And I said, well, what I've read is that they can fine you 50% of that amount for not paying what they ask from you. And he said, okay, well, I recognize this is your religious belief. It's opposite of mine. I'm a Republican. I believe in the military, and that's the reason the federal government should exist. But I believe that our Constitution, and particularly the amendments to the Constitution, guarantee your right to live out your religious beliefs, which you're doing faithfully. I can see that. So we'll pay the fine rather than levy your taxes. Oh. And I was just so grateful. They have my eternal love for listening to me, <laughs> seeing me that way. What were your experiences initially with not paying taxes? 
But, you know, I don't think there were really any, rep- it was 1976 when we got married. And I don't, so that's about the time we figured we had a taxable income between the two of us. And uh, we decided that we weren't going to pay. I don't recall, maybe you do, Betsy, any real repercussions for a lot of years. Yeah, I wasn't doing work that they would take money out of it. I was, you were the one who was getting a salary. When I did work at a salary job later in 88, 89, there was an issue and it would have become an, I would have had to stop working. I was working in a landscape architect's office and uh, I would have had to stop because it was paying. I mean, I was having to pay taxes through that. And then I became self-employed and that way didn't have to deal with it. I think in my part, there was also a time, a point at which in my life, I became self-employed. But for there were some years, like when I worked for the university and the extension service and did jobs here and there, I don't think I was paid as a consultant. But the IRS didn't come down on us. The fact that we weren't submitting our 1040 forms and so forth, I don't think was um, on their radar for a while. Well, um, but we did. We did fill out. We did file. We've always filed the tax form and submitted, right. we submitted all the forms they wanted. So we complied because... We felt like we wanted them to know exactly what we were making and how much we weren't, you know, what our tax was, and then saying we're not going to pay it. And we wanted to do that in part as well to say to other people, you know, we're doing what you're doing. We're filing our tax forms so we know how much we owe. And then we don't give the IRS that amount. We distribute that to other organizations that help victims of war and internationally and at home, people who suffer because we spend so much money on on war making. So in that sense, we were trying to do the all-American thing by filing our tax forms, not being tax evaders. evaders. You know, some people called us that and we tried and say, no, we're not evading the tax, we're resisting the tax. And we always felt very strongly about writing them a letter and filling out the 1040 form accurately but with no check enclosed. And you resisted 100%. A lot of people don't understand that pretty typically for decades, 50% of a federal income tax is going to pay for the military. So if you end up paying $4,000 in taxes, it's been withheld from your paycheck. A lot of people don't even notice that they've already paid to the military. Then 50% of it, at least, is going to support the military. But those of us who have been war tax resistors recognize that even if we only gave them half the amount, half of that amount was going to be going to the military. So you've been 100% resistors? Yes. I went to the Social Security office in Greenfield once, and I said, do you know whether the 50% that goes to, um, you know, that doesn't go to uh, the government? Well, anyway, she said, it doesn't matter. She said, any amount you pay, is, as you said, goes, gets split. So it didn't make sense for us to pay just 50%. People would say, why don't you just pay $10? And we said, then because $5 would go to the military. So <laughs> we stuck to that very strictly. So what was the first year that you became a war tax resistor? That is to say, not phone tax, but income tax resistance. I think it was 76. Okay, so six years before I did that. My experience included that at one point they got some of it from some bank account that I had. There have been various ways in which they've got pieces of it. But for the most part, 
they didn't get that. And as I took some legal ways because Carter in office, you could install solar in your house and get a tax credit. I did that for two different times, two different houses. So that eliminated any tax liability for several years. I did some legal things as well, which I thought were going to be doing good for the world. Right. The question is, how do you take your money and convert it into something life affirming and something world healing? What did you contribute towards the two of you? Virtually every year, we took half of what we withheld and sent it to groups aiding people overseas, children especially, who had been injured or killed or families by our bombing or by our war, war making of some kind. And the other half of what we withheld, we would send to local groups, homeless shelters and food banks. But also every year almost, one of those local groups would be veteran services, particularly providing homes for homeless veterans. And there was plenty of need for that. And, and those veterans groups, I don't think had any problem except we always told them where the money was coming from. This was tax money we refused to pay. That didn't stop them from accepting it and thanking us. Is this a thing that on April 15th each year, you sat down and talked to each other and said, okay, where do we get to give our Christmas gift to this year? How did you approach this? That's about it. It was kind of the way it went. And we had ones that we gave more than once, certainly, but we shifted it around here and there. And, you know, it was sort of fun to do in that sense. It is kind of fun. And to realize how much money that was just going into the war machine that you get to have a say on where it goes and what you can do that's good for the world instead of just letting the machine chew it up and chew up people along with it. And the value of contributing money to local groups that were veterans groups and homeless shelters for veterans or whatever, or food banks, is that the amount we were giving would make a sizable difference to them Whereas if we gave it to some big national nonprofit group, they would send us a form letter thanking us, but there would be no sense of knowing who we were and that we lived in their community and so forth. By the way, Randy and Betsy, and again, this is Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner. They're both in Massachusetts, war tax resistance for many decades. The reason that you came to my attention just recently, I'd seen your names in past decades, was because the War Tax Resistance Penalty Fund, which I've been a part of forever, it's a way that folks can contribute to limit the impact of the government's collection of war taxes from individuals. It can be shared so we can support so you don't have to go into the poorhouse or lose all life support just because the government comes and takes the thousand dollars typically of penalties and all that kind of things that they tack on when you don't pay the money that they want you to. So the war tax resistance penalty fund, you had filed with that and, and you know, thousands of us contribute some money towards that to make sure that we sh it's a shared burden that we take on when we face down the government. That's how Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner came to my attention just recently. I want to talk about the penalties that you faced over the years. I think the climax for me, and I don't know if it's climax for you, was when they tried to seize your home. But had they tried to take it out of your accounts before? Had they tried to take your car? Had they? How else had they approached you and tried to get money for their continuation of war? They did take money out of our bank account, and so we stopped having a bank account, which meant that we had to have friends help us cash checks, paychecks, and then basically had cash and used money orders. 
which was a nuisance and went on for years. But, you know, it was a reminder of what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I was often the one who dealt with that because we dealt with our money. But uh, Betsy's our treasurer. <laughs> You know, so then I'm finally later, I did open the account and it was so exciting to be back in the world of, of writing um, checks. Writing checks. <laughs> but I kept, we kept it under a certain amount. But, you know, they did take money. They did not take our car. Uh, we always had old used cars, partly because we couldn't afford a better one and partly because we didn't want them to take it. One IRS agent told us, your cars are sold. They're not worth anything to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but one of the things that they can do, you owe $100 and they'll take a $4,000 car and they'll sell it for $100 and you're out of luck and yeah. They, yeah. they just count that to their benefit. So they worked up to eventually with lien on your house and they're going to come and seize your house. Could you talk about that progress and the wonderful community building and work that you did around that? It was inspirational to me when I first started reading about it, what, late 80s, early 90s. Well, we're really quite lucky because we lived in an area that was pretty progressive in the first place. And there was an older couple who I'm sure you've heard of, Wally and Juanita Nelson who had been war tax resistors since just after World War II. They had moved into our area, and they were a magnetic couple who just, people loved them, and they lived very simply. They never paid any taxes, period. So they immediately had become part of our local war resistance group. And when the IRS announced they were going to seize the house, Wally and Winnie were right there in the forefront to help us do everything we wanted to do. And I think they inspired a lot of people who might otherwise not have gotten involved, although there were other war tax resistors for sure. So I just think it became a cause, you know, a local cause. And even in the, new, in the newspapers and the radio, TV, there was this aspect of local family, house threatened, eight-year-old, nine-year-old daughter may lose her house because blah, 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 blah. And so there was a lot of visibility. There was a lot of uh, media, I mean, national media, as well as regional and local media, and it just pulled in a lot of people who said they wanted to be part of that. So our neighbor across the street, Bob Beatty, who was also a war tax resistor and still is, he had a major hand in organizing affinity groups to come and spend a week at the house to protect it from seizure or from harassment from pro-war people, of which we had some. So we had people coming from all over New England and even as far away as St. Louis, there was an affinity group from St. Louis, another one from Northern California. And they'd spend a week at a time. Dave Dellinger and his wife came with an affinity group from Northern Vermont more than once. So it built up this whole support community that just kept growing. And it was very strong. And we had events together. We had concerts out on the lawn of the house they wanted to seize. And people came to the concerts, you know, this whole cause celebre within the progressive community. And of course, most of the people who were supporting us were not, in fact, war tax resistors. They just felt strongly that we shouldn't have been penalized in this way. We shouldn't lose our house. So this went on for some years before the government finally moved in, locked the doors, and put up signs, government property, house owned by the government, and so forth, and told us that it's over. No point protesting anymore. But instead of accepting that, our supporters went right back into the house, took the locks off that the government had put on it, and just kept reoccupying the house and vigilantly outside the house. And then to make a long story short, there were lots of 
this is the sad part for us, the most difficult part. Lawyers got involved. The people who's, who had bought the house at auction and lived in it. It's a young couple who had never had their own house. And there was a lot of sympathy for them. And we tried to work out something with them where we would build houses together and they would get some, get one that they wouldn't accept that. So it just went on until finally our people were getting arrested hand over fist when the government finally put an injunction, laid down an injunction. Anyone who stepped on the land from our side was going to be arrested and was arrested. It reached a kind of climax. I may be forgetting some of the key parts of it, but finally the vigil petered out and the people themselves decided they didn't want, the people who had bought our house for $5,400 decided they didn't want to live there after all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wasn't it because it's whatever, a land contract, because it's the group, the land is community owned. There were conditions it was a community land trust. Yeah, community land trust. There's conditions, and it, it couldn't be passed on from you just because government took it, right. took it took away your house. That didn't mean they had the right to be on this community land trust. And right. so I think I understand that you opposed it on that basis, too. There, How long did this go on? Was this a year, two the years? The thing was five years. For us, was five years. But Randy, when Randy said it was years that the affinity groups, that the affinity groups started once the um, federal marshals came to arrest Randy and tell us we had to leave the house. So the complexity, it's, it, there's a lot of complexity here. And actually, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a movie that a friend made about this called Act of Conscience. And he doesn't get all the details in, in in there either because it's it's just a lot to be dealt with, including the Valley Community Land Trust, which owned the land. So that got part of the, the reason it, things took longer was because of that issue. But if people were interested, you could go watch this movie. I'll make sure I can have a link to it to get people to it. Act of Conscience, it's called. Robbie Lepster made the movie. We'll direct people so that they can follow up on this. But there's this whole number of years where I guess you had to live in different places. You never knew when the government's going to come in. I remember in 1982, again, that's the first time that I become a war tax resistor. And there was this whole public thing with newspapers and TV stations, everything present. We had been leafleting outside the IRS office for the four weeks leading up to that, to April 15th. And on April 15th, we're getting ready to go in. Uh, The other people from the War Tax Resistance Group in Milwaukee are hauling in hundreds of dollars of food to offer in place of my taxes. The weeks before, they had one guard outside the IRS office. We told them we were going to be there leafleting. And the day that I showed up, they knew something big was going on because the media had been asking them about it because we put out the word. There were six six foot five tall men standing with arms crossed and in their uniforms. My bowels got a little bit soft, I have to admit, right at that moment. It was intimidating. I felt the nervousness. It didn't deter me at all. But you had to face people coming regularly and lawyers and government officials, and I assume federal marshals, everybody coming all those times. Did you just smile at them and go on or how did this affect you? Well, the state police also were in there a fair amount, and it was nerve-wracking and stressful. I just wanted to say there was a the land trust definitely stepped in behind us, and they went to court to and, and sued the people who were in our house 
And so it got all wrapped up in court. And then the, the lawyer on their side told the people in the house not to talk to us like they always say in these court cases. So the communication was practically non-existent. And there were also a lot of people protesting against us, including Vietnam veterans and just other people. Some of them brought guns to the house and threatened to shoot us. And there's a lot of threats of violence. It was a, And that's all in the film, or a lot of it. But anyway, it finally ended with the people didn't want to be there. Their lawyer settled with our lawyer. And for about $10,000 that the land trust put up, they accepted the money, which I think was enough to pay their lawyer. And they left. And we could have resumed life in the old house, but they chose to instead build a house right behind it and with help from Betsy's mother. Betsy's father had meanwhile died of ALS. We didn't want to continue to be in the old house because there were still threats. People who were really pissed off and thought, goddamn war tax resistors, they forced out that poor couple and they won. And they shouldn't have won, meaning us, we won. (laughs) So... It was still a very tense scene, and we would just as soon, especially with a young daughter, not live right there in the old house on the same road where cars would go by and yell things and throw things. And, and all this was taking place roughly 30 years ago. Now, again, I mentioned the War Tax Resistance Penalty Fund. They asked for our sharing. We helped pay penalties and interests that the government took and came after you for. And which I think is a, a wonderful way for people to participate, even if they're not more tax resistors right. themselves. We appreciate right? it very much. So 30 years later, you're still doing the same work, or maybe the, it's still arriving all these years later, the impact upon you. Has this been a good journey? Has this been something that's felt fruitful in your lives? Because I know that there must have been times when you said, screw this, I want to give up, stop hassling me, let's get on to other things. I know that myself, there have been times when I've been tempted in that direction, and certainly my wife has felt like that, my second wife. My first wife was with me at that very first time in 1982, and we did all kinds of things together. My second wife has the same values about war and stuff, but she's not as confrontational as I am. So I'm just interested in hearing how has the journey gone for you and, and where are you now? Well, I don't think it's, I know mean, it's not something we regret doing. You know, it did have a big impact on our lives and our families and our daughter. But, you know, I, I've always thought that whenever there's something our country has done, like bomb Iraq or, you know, all the war mongering that we've done, well, at least we're not paying for it. That's the bottom line, which makes it feel worthwhile. And, you know, there's lots of times when I feel like I'm not doing enough. And people always say, oh, you've done your share. And I I don't feel like I have, but they do. (laughs) So that's comforting in some level. The irony now, which is why we've been in touch with the War Tax Resistance Penalty Fund, is that, you know, now 30, 35, 40 years later, when we're on Social Security, they started deducting from our Social Security every month because of our war tax resistance years ago, still unpaid. So, <laughs> Well, I hope it's inspirational to our listeners for Spirit in Action that it takes them decades to get anything out of you. And at a certain point, the government has to say, maybe there's a better way of dealing with our citizens than asking them to pay something that they conscientiously object to. 
I have to say that both you, Randy, and you, Betsy, by your witness, have been inspirational to me. Again, 30 years ago, I heard about what was going on with you over in Massachusetts. I'm in Wisconsin. And I'm inspired by the fact that not only that you took your witness, but you brought community with you. And not everybody brings community with them. And that's one of the reasons I do Spirit in Action, because we need to build community. We need to work together. Two of us alone are not going to change the government, but two and two is four and four and four is eight. And the multiplication builds a major difference in this country. And you two have been part of doing that. And somehow your marriage seems to have continued <laughs> to function. <laughs> I do know that these kind of tensions can be really hard in marriage as well as with your daughter and so on. I do know that these can be major issues. And for you to have stayed together and have had the comforting arms of community supporting you, is an inspiration to me. I thank you so much for living that life of witness and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. I'm very glad to have met you. Hope maybe it's someday to meet you in person. And We'd love to have you visit us sometime if you ever come to Massachusetts. I'd love to. Uh, we've had the national Quaker gathering called Friends General Conference right. at Amherst a couple different times. And so, you know, we've got so many reasons to get over your way. Please do. I thank you. And you're, of course, always welcome here in Wisconsin. I'd love to have you come join us. Thank you. I really, I just so appreciate your work and taking all this time to sit with me today. Thank you so much. No, thank Thanks for you. asking us. Yeah, yeah. And check out Michael Klein. We'll check out Michael Klein. Other links like that, including to Acts of Conscience, the movie, we'll have that on northernspiritradio.org. And again, folks, we've been speaking with Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner. Their war tax resistance in Massachusetts has been inspirational to me and to so many of us. So I hope you'll check them out. We have all of the links you need to do that on northernspiritradio.org. One last gift for you today is a song by Tom Nielsen, a frequent Northern Spirit Radio guest of mine, written about experience Tom had as part of the folks protecting Randy and Betsy's home from seizure. We'll send you off with Keep Your Motor Running by Tom Nielsen, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Joe had made his peanut butter sauce with noodles for us all. Ten plates gathered round the table Giving ASAP one last call Beth was serving me my portion And Luke was chewing on his bone Everyone had gathered here To keep this house a home At two in the morning I woke to a car With its engine Running outside Looked in the driveway Up and down the road But not a thing I could see in sight Then I realized That motor running Was on the futon Next to me Jim Perkins Was idling away With no emissions That I could see Keep your motor running all night long Keep your motor running like a song Running so family knows that they are not alone Keep your motor running till Betsy and Randy and Lillian come back home 
the Daniel Shays, non-violent by original liberation friend take aim. Captain read his proclamation saying, no killing in our names. The sergeant without arms rolled his drum and seven generations there extended their arms to welcome us home, the guardianship to share. Keep your motor running all night long. Keep your motor running like a song. Running so a family knows that they are not alone. Keep your motor running till Betsy and Randy and Lillian come back home. Bill and Asaph played guitars. Susan sang along. We all baked a birthday cake for Tad. 32 years on Karen spoke a poem Her daughter Jessie Wrote about peace Katushoni said a prayer That all war would cease Keep your motor running All night long Keep your motor running like a song Running so a family knows That they are not alone Keep your motor running Till Betsy and Randy and Lillian Come back home Keep your motor running all night long Keep your motor running like a song Running so family knows That they are not alone Keep your motor running Till Betsy and Randy and Lillian Come back home Keep your motor running Till Betsy and Randy and Lillian Come back The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 